Amen. Good morning, church. How we doing? All right, you're awake. I like that already. So before we jump into anything, so um, we... We are a praying church. Um, I've, I have been, had the opportunity to present a few things to you guys over, the, over the, the years that I've been here, and I've noticed that when I ask you to pray, you pray, and we pray together, we pray out loud, and we bring our petitions and requests to the Lord, and so there's been a, a situation that's going on at the church, and I just think we should pause as a church and pray over that. Um, uh, we love Etta. Etta is fantastic. She has all of our children's ministry stuff. But her sister is sick right now, and she has cancer. She has um, if this is your first time, thank a couple of tumors, and and so she is on standby to go to be at the hospital when that's going to happen. We're waiting to hear when the surgery is going to take place. But I just thought for today, before we get going, it'd be good if we could just have a number of us pray out loud over Etta's sister and for Etta and her family because we love them so much and we have a big God who does big things. So I'm just going to I'm going to back away. I'm going to let us pray, pray out loud and then I will close out in a couple minutes. Lord, thank you for this time. I thank you for Etta and her family. I thank you for her devotion to you and her love for her sister as she continues to be a light um, of you, Jesus, to her. I ask that you would open doors that normally wouldn't be open through this situation for her to share the gospel and the truth of who you are. And we ask that you would just allow the doctors to do everything they need to do to remove that cancer, to allow her to come out of that successfully. We trust you, 
We believe that you are a God that hears our prayers, and so we call out to you, the one who can do the impossible. We love you. We pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Thank you for being such a wonderful church, you guys. Thank you so much. We love you so much. Um, so I remember it was, a, it was an August afternoon. It was very warm. And I remember standing in front of a bunch of people, probably a little bit bigger than this group as well. And I remember uh, having someone say, hey, this is what you need to say right now. And it went something like this. Simon, do you take Annette to be your lawfully wedded wife? to love and to cherish from this day forward through good times and bad, through sickness and in health, through riches and poor, as, both, as, as you both shall live. And I remember saying, yes, I do. And then I got the guy to trick her to say the same thing uh, in that moment. But what wasn't said in that moment was, uh, I, Simon, take you, Annette, as long as you do my laundry, I will love you. As long as you prepare meals that I enjoy, I will continue to be faithful to you. None of that was done. And the reality was because we didn't enter into a contract that day. See, that's not what we did. A contract says that if you do this and I do this, we can stay in this agreement and then everything will be fine. But if someone breaks that agreement, then I will be out very quickly. But what we entered into in that day was a covenant. And, and the, the richer for poor, the sickness and the health, the good times and bad times. Do you know really what's being said there? Regardless of the situations that may come, regardless of how hard it actually gets, I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stick around. And I joke all the time that I said, either you need to pray that I die or hire an assassin if you're going to get rid of me because I ain't going nowhere. Because that's the reality that we're talking about. And as I talk about this, uh, I, I'm, I just always go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis is probably my favorite book of the Bible. It's where everything started. It's when God created all things. It's when he gave our identities of man and woman and what it looks like to live with God. And if you get Genesis wrong, you kind of get everything wrong. You kind of got to go back to like, this is how God made it. This is what God wants. And when sin comes along, that's a problem. And so as I was doing that, I kind of went, man, where do we see God's overarching promise for us. And it really starts all the way back in Genesis 3.15. As sin came into the world and destroyed everything, God wasn't caught off guard. God wasn't surprised. He already knew what was going to happen, and he had a solution before it even took place. And so in Genesis 3.15, we have this moment where he's handing out the consequences to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent and all that's involved. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. So speaking to the serpent, and there's going to be this offspring that's going to come from Eve and that what's going to happen at some point, there's going to be this bruising of a head, the crushing of a head of the serpent, and there's going to be some kind of wound inflicted upon the heel of that offspring. And we have our very earliest promise that the sin problem will be taken care of through these people. Well, it doesn't take very long until sin starts to spread all over the place and that first family goes sideways. If you want to read about that, just keep reading Genesis. But we get to all the way to chapter 6 and it gets so bad that God's going to do this hard reset. 
And you may know of this story. It's the story that we give to our young children and we decorate their rooms with, which I call the saddest day on the, in the world, is Noah's Ark. And so we'll decorate our kids. Oh, look, here's the ark and the animals and all the death that came. Can we just acknowledge how morbid that is to a certain degree? And I only say because I'm guilty of decorating my kids' room that way too. It's cute. No, it's scary. And so we see that God is going to wipe out everything. But God is a God who keeps his promises, isn't he? That he said that there is going to be this offspring that's going to come, that's going to solve the sin issue. And he keeps a remnant for himself, the family of Noah and his sons and the wives. Well, then we get to Genesis 11, and we see that man is up to the same things again, isn't he? He wants to make his name great. He wants to be more important than God. And so all the people of the world come together and say, we're going to make this monument of our greatness called the Tower of Babel. Absolutely. We're going to lift our names up. We're going to lift our names high. We're going to show how great and amazing we are and that we don't need God, and we can be gods unto ourselves. And God says, no, that's not going to work that way. Sorry. We're not playing that game. And he confuses their languages and scatters them. And what we see is the first bits of these different people groups that we would ultimately know as nations, wouldn't we, as they gather in their language groups. And then we get to Genesis chapter 12. And Genesis chapter 12 tells us that there is this man named Abram that God is going to pick out of all these people. He says, you are going to be my guy. He didn't earn it. He didn't do anything great because of it. Actually, his dad was a, uh, a, he was making idols that people were worshiping. So like, it didn't come from a good lineage there. And God picks this man and says, I'm going to do something important through you. And he says this, as he has the call of Abraham. I'm going to start in uh, verse 2, even though we have 3, it's going to come up. It says, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now, here you go. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then if you go a couple more chapters, you'll see that there's a covenant that's made with Abram of how he's going to do that and how he's going to be with him. And so he sets this group of people apart. And these people are going to be known as the Israelites or the Jewish people. And they will be who we follow through the entire Old Testament. As you read the Old Testament, which translates into Old Covenant, we follow this group of people around to see how God interacts with his people that he's made a covenant with and what a covenant actually looks like. And we see that God shows them how to live, how to worship, what to eat, and what we find is that they fail all the time. They cannot do it. But what we do see is is the faithfulness of God in that covenant in spite of their failures and their brokenness. But then we see that Jesus comes along. He comes from this people line. He is the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3. And the Bible shifts into the second book that we have. So we have the Old Testament and we have the New Testament. And that New Testament translates to New Covenant. And there's a new covenant that comes out of this. And from this point on, everything changes. Jesus dies for the sin of the world. The church is born. And we, that's where we are, right? The book of Acts. Up to this point, what we have seen is God working through and showing his Jewish people, the Israelites, who Jesus is. We haven't dealt with anybody outside of that yet. But today, 
Everything changes. We're going to step into the largest narrative that we have in the book of Acts. And because of it, it is so important that that's why it's given so much space. And there's so much repetition that takes place through it to show the importance of it. And without this, none of us would be here. None of us would have the ability to be in this room right now because it's speaking about who we are. Now, here's the thing. I'll just drop the bomb right now. We are covering 66 verses today. I'm not going to read them all. (laughs) That's why I sent out the message on Instagram and Facebook. Hey, read in advance. Know what's going on and be there. But I am going to read the part in this section that summarizes it best so we can understand exactly the story of what's going on. Then we're just going to walk through it. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 5 through 16, says this. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me, looking at it closely. I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them. Making no distinction, these six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, and in all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptizes with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump into this section of Scripture. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time to open your word as we look at this super important, powerful moment in what you were doing in the church and what you were doing ultimately for the world. Lord, I ask that we would sit in some of that awe today, that we would realize you are a God who keeps his promises. You are a God who's made a covenant with your people from the very beginning of how you would save us and bring us back to you. Lord, I ask that we would celebrate who you are and what you've done on the cross through your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I ask that there are things that I just need to not be saying today that you would just remove those from my notes and my mouth and my mind that I would be a vessel used by you to communicate your message to, to the men and women that are here, and that I would be bold enough to proclaim all the truth that you have for us this morning. I love you. I pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. <clears throat> As we walk through this section of Scripture, there are some things that we can see that God does and that God is doing with his people. The first thing we want to look at is that God loves all of his people. I'm not going to read through, but I will give you the section of scripture that that's coming out of. So you see this Acts 10, 1 through 8 is where we kind of first grab that section. So in the very beginning of the story, what we see is there's a man named Cornelius. He is an Italian guy, a Gentile, not a Jew at all. From this passage, we see that he lives in Caesarea. That's 31 miles north of where Peter's at in Joppa. So he's down the coast, he'll go 31 miles up the coast, and that's where he's at. 
It's, a, it's really a really important city. If you know the history of that city, it was actually named after Caesar Augustus. And so it had a lot of hustle and bustle. There was a lot of money and people that came through that area. Important people lived there. He would have been super wealthy. He was a high-ranking soldier with a lot of soldiers underneath him. He was uh, a native to that area, which means he had even more clout and he had much influence in that area. It also tells us that he was a God-fearer. Meaning that he knew of the God of the Israelites in some way, shape, or form to the point where he would pray to that God at times. But he did not follow the customs and the laws for purity that would make him clean before that God. And it also tells us that he gave to the poor and the needy. Most likely, he was giving to the Israelites of that area, the Jews of that area. And so we see that he's a very generous man. He seems like he was a good dude is who he seems like. But he gets this vision from an angel of God and responds in a very similar way that we saw Paul respond before when God came to him. And he says, what is it, Lord? He simply tells him that his prayers and his his giving has gone to God and been accepted and received by God. And what I love that we see is that there's this interaction that takes place again where God goes and pursues those that he's after. We saw it with Paul. Paul is not seeking after God. When we see it with Cornelius here as well, that God is the one that sought them out. God is the one that bridged the gap. And he says, send a couple of your men to Joppa. Go to this guy, Simon the Tanner's house, and ask if Peter lives there, and then have him come back with you. That's, that's the mission. That's the plan. And we see in this section that it is not just the Jewish people that God loves and cares for, but it's also the Gentiles. Now, when I say Gentiles, if you're new to church, that just means anyone who's not Jewish. Some of you might be, might have that heritage there, but for the most part, most of us are not. So you and me would be Gentiles. And to the Jews, you have to understand how they viewed the Gentiles and who they were. They were the most unclean, unsaved people on the planet. They didn't follow God's law. They didn't do what God said. They didn't uh, adhere to the dietary rules which made you clean or unclean. And so they were just the worst. And there's no way that they would have gone, yeah, God's going to hear his prayers They would even say that God does not love them and does not care for them. Some of the Jewish men would pray every morning, thank you, God, for not making me a woman or a Gentile. I'm like, I don't know which one of those phrases is really worse. They're horrible. But that's how they viewed them, that God did not care for them. My question is this, as we look at them and and the Jews would say they were dirty, horrible sinners that we need to stay away from, they're going to make us unclean. Are there people in your life that you would view in that same way? That they are so unclean, that they are so far gone, that they are such dirty sinners that God could never love them? Because here's the truth. You can't out God's grace. You cannot out God's grace. Number two, Jesus makes unclean things clean. Acts 10, 9-33 So while they were traveling to Simon's house that next day, so they're on the road, they're heading up north, up the coast. Peter is uh, at the house, it's Simon the Tanner, and he's hungry. He's like, hey, when's when's lunch? I'm hungry, I want to eat some food. And what he sees, they're like, it's not ready yet. So he's like, ah, fine. So he goes up on the rooftop to go and pray because he's waiting for this food to be made. And he enters into, he falls into a trance, a deep state of meditation. 
And what he sees is he sees the heavens open up and a sheet lowered down by its four corners. Now, it's, a, it's an interesting way to, to put that as that kind of lays out that what we see is that it's pointing to in a divine activity is about to take place. If you do a study on when the heavens are opened up, you'll see all these verses to start to see that major things happen when this takes place. If you want to do a study on your own this week and read through it, I've got a few verses you could look at. We'll leave them up for a few minutes. Matthew 3.16. John 1.15, Acts 7.56, and Revelations 19.11. Those are just a few that I grabbed really quick. There's many more that you could look at. But these are times when God starts to do something huge. And so Peter understands that this is going to be important. And so it's this weird sheet like a cloth that comes down, and there's all these animals all over it. Now, we wouldn't think much of that, but there's all these animals on there that they would know as food that they could eat, but there's all these other animals on there that would have been outside of the Jewish people's eating dietary rules and regulations. And he's like, oh man, there's all this stuff. And then you hear this voice, and it's Jesus, by the way. And Jesus says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Now, in that moment, I wonder what Peter was really thinking, because here's the thing. We know that Peter has problems, right? Peter makes mistakes. I love Peter because Peter reminds me of me. He's got a lot of thrust and gusto, and it usually just lands the wrong way all the time. He screws things up constantly. And he's, I'm, I wonder if he's thinking, I don't want to fail again. I've done it so many. I just don't want to mess this up. And he, but what we see is it happens three times. This vision happens three times. If you think about it, there's these numbers in the Bible that become important, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but you know, the number 40, the number 12, the number uh, 7, the number 3, all these are, these are numbers that show up, and 3 shows up here that happens three times. But that number would be significant to Peter, wouldn't it? How many times did he deny Jesus? Three times. And remember when Jesus, he, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, he came and visited everybody, he comes and visits Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he's like, yes, Lord. And he's like, Peter, do you love me? He's like, yes, Lord. He's like, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Like how many times? Three. So the number three would have stood out to him in this moment that God is doing something. And he's like, I would never do it. I'm not going to eat this food. He's like, no, 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 no. What are you doing? But remember before we go and judge Peter for not listening to God, he has been raised under the strictest dietary laws his entire life. He's never experienced any of that food. He's just like, hey, I, I would starve before I ate these other things. I'm just not going to do it. Imagine if you had been told at some point, hey, you can't eat these kinds of animals. You can't eat this meat. You can't eat these things that have been touched by this. By God. And God's like, don't do this. You're like, okay, God, I'm not going to eat that anymore. And he, I keep waiting for him to say, don't eat vegetables, but he hasn't told me yet. <laughs> my sons said they've been told that, but I, don't, I haven't heard it. So here's my thing. You would have a hard time with this as well. But then Jesus says this really important thing in 1015. I've got to find it. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And from that point forward, bacon was back on the menu. Praise Jesus. 
It's a glorious, amazing day that he loves us so much that he's given us bacon. Here's the thing. How is he making this unclean thing that's been unclean for so long clean now? As a matter of fact, that's actually the question that Peter was wrestling with. It tells us that the next verse says, and Peter was very perplexed by this. He's like, I don't get it. Like, you, this is bad, and now you're saying it's not. You're saying that this is clean, that you made this clean. How do you make it clean? And while he's trying to figure this out, he has this other vision. Two guys from Caesarea, they show up and they're like, hey, where's Simon Peter at? Then the Spirit says to him, go with these guys right away and don't hesitate. Like, okay. I mean, a question that we should always be asking all the time is, where do you need to obey God? Because I was thinking about this. If you, if you think about sin, if you think about um, righteousness and the differences, at the heart of sin is disobedience, not trusting God. And at the heart of righteousness is obedience and trusting God. He says, hey guys, it's me. Uh, I'm Peter. Why are you here? What do you want? And they tell him the story about Jesus speaking to Cornelius. And a holy angel told him to invite him over to hear what Peter was saying. And he's like, all right, cool, let's go. Peter's like, let's go, let's go do it. Let's go do this thing. So they pack all their stuff up. And the next day they head out to go up to Caesarea. Now when they get to Cornelius' house, they are waiting for him all there. Everyone, like he had gathered everyone up. They're waiting for this to happen. And Cornelius falls down at the feet of Peter to worship him. And it's great. Peter's like, whoa, 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 no, 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 knock it off, man. What are you doing? Don't do that. That's, I'm not God. I'm not, I'm not your Savior. I'm not Jesus. I'm just a, he says, I'm just a man like you. And he tells them, and I love Peter's response. It feels so rude, but he's just being really honest. He's like, you know it's unlawful for me to be here. I shouldn't be in your house. He's all, you know that I'm a Jew, and I know that you're a Gentile. You know that me being associated with you makes me unclean and I shouldn't be anywhere near you. I shouldn't even associate with you. I shouldn't even be talking to you. But God told me to come here, so here I am. And Peter's like, what do you want? <laughs> it's kind of what he says. Like, what do you want from me? And so what we see is that he tells him the story. He goes through everything. He's like, this is what happened to me. And just so you know, this story of what happened with Cornelius, it, it's repeated three times. And so this is just the second of what takes place. And in verse 33, he says this. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. It's great. He's like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, God told you to come here. What do you want to tell us? He kind of didn't answer his message. It was this weird interaction where he's like, you, what do you want me to do? He's like, what do you want to tell me? And he's like, all right, here we go. And in this section, it's important because what, what's happened is God can call these things unclean, clean for a reason. So you wonder, like, how can he call these unclean things that this generations and generations have said, this is unclean? Well, here's the thing. The reason that they can be clean is because Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly. See, what he's showing is that it's not the law through us that says, see, Jesus fulfilled the law by accomplishing everything that needed to be accomplished. He did what we couldn't do. And he's saying, you keep trying to earn God's favor by doing all these things, and you can't, and you're not doing it well. 
See, what he's saying is if you hide your life in Jesus, now you are clean. He becomes our, our cleansing agent for who we are. So we're no longer unclean. Those things are no longer unclean because Jesus fulfilled it. See, it's God's grace through his son Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that even allows it to be transferred to us that we could have that righteousness, that we could be clean because he accomplished it. It's also saying that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's for everyone that would call on his name. See, the gospel transcends everything. There's nothing that the gospel can't reach to. And it blows away any barriers that you could imagine. And right now, it's blowing away for the Jewish people the largest barrier that they had, the major distinction between them and the rest of the world, this unclean factor that had to be taken care of. And the gospel destroys that. I mean, we... I kind of, I said it earlier, but is there a group of people or is there a person that you think is too unclean for God to save? And I say person because sometimes it may not be a group of people because, you know, we wouldn't do that or maybe we would, I don't know. But maybe it's just one person. You're like, that guy. Too unclean. Jesus couldn't clean that guy. Maybe it's someone who's sinned against you. It's done something to you. You're like, there's no way that God could ever love that person. And I, and I just, I laugh because I read the, you know, the, the roster for God's people that he's chosen. It's like mostly murderers. You ever notice that? I don't even got a thing for guys who kill people. There's just something about God that he's like saying, like, this is the worst, and yet I can still save that. I mean, look at Paul. Killing his very people, yet God saves him. Now, Peter still has not figured this out, but what we see is that he's obedient. He's obedient to God and crosses over a barrier to a people group that he would normally never, ever engage. And in his mind, it made no sense whatsoever, but God said, do it, and he did it. I guess my question is this. Who is God calling you to engage out of obedience? Who is God calling you to cross a barrier to go show that love and to take that message forward? Who is that individual? Three, God shows no partiality. That's out of Acts 10, 34 through 43. And so here's what happens. When we get to this moment, there's this moment where everything makes sense. And Peter gets it. His eyes are open, almost like the scales that fell off of Paul's eyes. He gets it in that moment. In verse 34, he says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand. He's like, Oh, this is what's going on. That God shows no partiality. God's not playing favorites. I understand that God does not just favor one group of people, but that he actually loves everybody that the work of his son was not just for the jews but for the whole world see this is so neat that god has given us a view into what his family looks like if you want to know how god acts with his people with his children that's the old testament 
We get to watch God interact with his people that are disobedient, that are unloving, that make foolish decisions, that run far from him, that spit in his face, that go to other gods all the time. And we see how God responds, that he is the one that holds the covenant up even when the others can't. That is the God that we know and love. That we know what God values and we know what God hates. Because here's the thing. Right now we're playing this really dangerous social game where I get to decide what is good and what is wrong. And that is a dangerous game. Because my view may be different than your view and your view may be different than their view. So what is to be valued and what is to be hated? We need something that overarches everything that we would submit to. Something that's not tainted by greed or sin or wickedness or evil. We need something pure and holy and righteous to say this is good and this is bad. And that's exactly what's going on here. It tells us, he tells them that everyone who fears God and follows him is accepted by him. He says that Jesus came to bring peace. The peace that was lacking right now between God and man. And maybe you've sensed that that battle. Maybe you've sensed that that's what's going on. That there isn't peace between God and man in some way, shape, or form. Maybe in your own life he says, I just want to be at peace with God. I know I've felt that at times in my life where I felt far from God. I felt like I'm so deep in whatever sin I'm indulging in that moment that I feel like I'm far from God. It says that this Jesus brings peace, that he is the Lord, that he is the Christ, the one promised. How God appointed him to do his work, the work to restore man back to God, that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit to do this work, that he did good works, that he healed people that were oppressed by the enemy. It says that he died on a tree, talking about his death on a cross for our sins, and that God raised him from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, and that he has commanded us to go and to preach this message out as well. He said he is the one that the prophets spoke about so long ago and for so many years, that Jesus is the one that he judges the living and he judges the dead. And if you believe in him as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the one who died for your sins, he says that your sins will be forgiven. Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Have you called him your Lord and Savior? Do you see him as the most important thing? Have you placed your faith in him for forgiveness of sins? Because if you haven't, there is no time like the present that God is a God who cleanses his people. He makes unclean things clean. The other thing that I love is that God creates one family. In Acts 10, 44 through 48. So Peter's giving this speech. He's not even done. He's like, I'm just getting warmed up. And the Holy Spirit comes down on all of the Gentiles in that room in that moment. And they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the people, like those six guys that came with Peter, they're like, this is crazy. Because up to this point, they've never seen someone who's not Jewish have the Holy Spirit. It's never happened at this point. And so now they're seeing this thing and they're going, this is nuts. This is evidence that this was from God and that God approves of this very thing. That this is, this is what we've been waiting for. 
And I love what we do right away. I'm not going to go into a big thing on the Holy Spirit and all the ins and outs of what's working here. But here's something I want to point out. The first thing they do is what? They're speaking in tongues, and it says that they're extolling God. When this happens, when the Holy Spirit comes and fills people, we see the same thing over and over and over again all the time. They start talking about how amazing and great God is. They start talking about all the things that he's done, how he is the best. This idea of extolling is lifting the name of God high. And that is saying that he is more important than everything. He's more important than what I put my value in. He's more important than the things that I thought were once important. We're rejecting those things. We're saying this is the thing to be worshipped. This is the thing to be honored because only he is worthy of honor and praise. That's what they're saying in that moment. And, and what we see is this familiar picture happened all the way back in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 12, didn't it? The Jews receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, don't they? They're speaking in tongues. They're proclaiming the mighty works of God to those around them. They're talking about the Christ and who he is and what he's doing. Because here's the thing. Those who have the Spirit will proclaim God's greatness. And the thing that's so neat in this moment is that we almost have the second Pentecost, don't we? It's for the Gentiles. That they are receiving the power of God that indwells them and allows them to live the life they once couldn't live. And Peter knows this. He understands that this is from God. And he tells them, hey, get some water. We got to fill some water up in a bucket. We got to start, start baptizing these people. These people have made a public declaration that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and they're going to baptize him in that moment. See, the thing is, this is God is our Father and even though we forget about it all the time, we are one big family if we call ourselves Christians. And this is what he does that's so great. He takes two separate groups. He gives them one spirit and he says, you're no longer two groups anymore. You're no longer separate, but you're one. You are my family. You are my body. Another study, if you want to do a study this week on your own or if you want to do it with your life groups, you can look up these verses. Romans 12, 5. Huge section in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. Ephesians 4, 4. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Colossians 3, 15. All talk about how we are one body all talk about how we are one family we are god's family now instead of just looking at the jewish people to see how god is with his family we can now look at those from every nation from everywhere to see the family of god and how we as christians submit to that god how we as christians love each other how we love those around us, how we look like Christ in every situation, that he has given us that example. And he didn't just give us an example that's too hard to reach. He gave us the power of the Holy Spirit to do that now. So it's not in our power. It's not in our ability. It's empowered by God. My question is this. Do you see the church as your family? Do you love the people in the church like family? Or maybe like the, the, the leading question is, 
Where can you love the family of God better? Where can you reach out to somebody in this family and show that same kind of love, that unity that we have, the only unity that comes from being brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ through the blood of Jesus? That's what is thicker than human blood is the blood of Jesus. That's what we have. And then my fifth point is this. The law, we are no longer under the law. Acts 11, 1 through 18. So Peter, this is this great moment where all these beautiful things are happening and God's welcomed this new group of people into the family of God. He stays there for a number of days teaching and preaching and explaining the gospel and loving them well. He's like, I got to go back to Jerusalem. I got to tell the apostles. I got to tell the brothers. Like, this is awesome. Like, God is doing this thing. And he goes back and he's telling them how it's, what's going on, how God has now accepted the Gentiles into the family of God. And then the circumcision group shows up. And they spoil everything. <laughs> they just throw a wet blanket on all the joy and the happiness that's going on. And they call him out. It says that they criticized him. That Peter did exactly what God had said to do. And there was a group of individuals that then criticize him. Here, here's the thing. There are going to be times in life where God is going to call you to do something and there are going to be those that are ignorant to what God is doing that are going to criticize you for doing the very thing that God has called you to do. And they just lay into him. You're unclean. You're associated with them. You know better. How could you do that? See, here's the problem. They still thought for, to be saved that they had to first convert to Judaism right? Follow all the laws and the regulations there, and then you could receive Jesus. What they were doing is they were adding to the gospel. You need to, to join us and become Jews. You got to do all the law. It's heresy. They're adding to the gospel. They're adding things that aren't there. We've been freed from the law because Jesus fulfilled the law. And now they're saying, oh no, you're still under the law. That, that's not being saved. That's not the gospel. And when they heard that they received the Holy Spirit like them, something changes. They realized that God just leveled the playing field. There's no hierarchy. That they were just like them. Sinners that needed a Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I just, there's a fact here that I just, it's just really good for us to understand. Like, how could they not accept this? Because here's the thing. We don't know the exact timeline between when the Jews received the Holy Spirit and when the Gentiles did. It can be anywhere between seven years and 15 years. You don't think at that point they had built those rhythms in like, this is what it looks like. This is what it is at this point. This is what it means. This is what God's doing. He did it. He's not changed. It had been a long time that they had established all that was going on. And yet what we see is in this moment, he's saying no one is better than anyone else. That God's great rescue plan that he promised all the way back in Genesis 3, that he talked about the blessings for the entire world in Genesis 12, about this guy that was going to come from this line of this people that was going to be a blessing to the entire world. They're literally sitting in that moment right now. This is actually happening. They are witnessing history unfolding before their eyes. They're seeing the promise of God that they get to be a part of. And then Peter just, just is like, kind of like this mic drop right here 
in uh, verse 17. He says this to all of them. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gives to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He just puts it all in perspective really, really quickly, doesn't he? I'm not God. I can't stop God's plan. I can't keep God's floodgates of grace and love and mercy to pour out on the entire world. Who am I? He understood his position in the universe. Are there places in your life where you're still trying to please God with your actions? Are there places in your life you're still trying to do all these righteous things to please God? Are you trying to add to the gospel? Like, if I just did this, or if I just did that, then God would love me. No. Jesus said, it is finished. He accomplished all of it on the cross. There is no more work to be done. We rest in his work. We don't keep working. Any good deeds that we do is the outpouring of a changed heart and a changed life. It doesn't earn us salvation. It's the natural response to being changed and saved by Jesus Christ. That's why we do good works now. And then what you see is you see how they respond. Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. When confronted with the truth of God, with witnesses, there is nothing that we can say. What we can do is we can sit humbly in silence and sit in awe of a God where it looked like there was no way to save humanity. He did. Where it looked like there was going to be a group of people that could never be a part of God's family. He saved. And he calls them to him. We can sit and we can worship God. He is the God who keeps his promises of what he's going to do. Though we don't understand how they unfold and what he does, he keeps his promises. We are the ones who receive this great gift from God. Like without this moment, we would not be here today. We would be hopeless and under judgment of our lives and how we've lived. We have, uh, we have a big holiday coming up on October 31st. Anybody know what it is? Anybody? No. It's Reformation Day. Do you understand that God spoke to a German monk who wouldn't have received God's message if it wasn't for the fact that he was saved and he was a Gentile that was saved by the blood of Christ? That he saw what was happening with the wickedness of, of a group of individuals and said, I have 95 reasons why what you're saying is wrong and unbiblical. And he went and he hammered it to the door of the church. And that we now have the word of God in our hands because that man was willing to translate the Bible into the common language of men so we could read it, so we could have it, so we could understand it, so we would not be misled. See, God's promise to us is just like a wedding vow. He's saying, I love you, and I am going to go to great lengths to save you. My question is, how do you respond to God's promise when he calls out to you? What do you need to repent of today? Maybe it is to him for the first time, 
Or maybe it's something in your life that you need to reject and you need to lay down knowing that you're being disobedient to so trusting and believing the God of the universe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to open your word. Lord, I know that I have literally just grazed the surface of all that we could be going through today. I ask that as we go our different ways that we would realize something, that you are a God that is a covenantal God, that you make a promise to your people to save them, that you've made a promise to do things that we don't understand in your time and in your way, to save men and women to you, to cross over barriers that we think are impossible to cross over, yet you showed that through your son Jesus dying on the cross that you make us one family, that you bring unity. The gospel brings unity with your people, not disunity. We love you. We submit to you. And I ask that you would continue to move in this room right now. For this in your name, amen.